Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Sam Piccolotti, your host of NZD Fit and the No Zero Days Life. I'm going to change things up today. I'm going to bring you a podcast interview that I was a guest on with my friend and host of 100 Words, Brian Linder. If you're not familiar with Brian's work at 100 Words, I encourage you to go check it out on Spotify and other platforms. Brian had asked me to be his guest to talk about the inception and the beginnings of No Zero Days, what that ethos meant to me, what it means currently, what it's evolved into. We also talk about some early childhood experiences that I had, hardships and challenges that I had to overcome in my journey. We talk about some of the philosophies and methodologies that can help you overcome your challenges in your journey. We talk about chasing dreams, crushing big goals, and we also get into an event that I completed in August of 2020 that I refer to as the Iron Mountain Man. This was a solo event that I did in Leadville, Colorado. It was an attempt to be the first known individual to complete an Ironman distance triathlon above 10,000 feet. We talk about that day, a near-death experience that I had with hypothermia, and some of the emotional aspects that had come out of that journey. So I hope you guys enjoy this interview. And if you're, again, if you're not familiar with Brian's work, look him up at 100 Words. Thanks very much and enjoy. Hey, Brian Linder here, host of 100 Words, and welcome to this week's episode. Before we jump in today, can I ask you a favor? Now, in these crazy times, I want you to please consider making even a small donation to your local causes that fight hunger. 100 Words supports Meals on Wheels and also our Back Mountain Food Pantry. So why not support a cause to help those with less to meet their basic needs? Thank you. I want you to meet Sam Piccolotti. Now, Sam is the founder of the No Zero Days movement and also the host of the podcast NZD Fit, which is about the No Zero Days life. So check the podcast notes for more information on both of these. Now, Sam's going to talk to us today about chasing dreams despite huge, almost insurmountable setbacks and a simple but easily adaptable philosophy to keep yourself healthy at any level. So the end of the conversation wraps with a bit of a journey, a journey that was motivated by the life of a mountain man called Jeremiah Johnson, where you will also get a firsthand account of severe hypothermia and what that must have felt like in what seemed to me was a near-death experience. So enjoy the conversation with Sam Piccolotti. A uh, little, little background on me. Uh, you know, I was born and raised in the uh, in the region that, that you now call home, and that is uh, Northeast Pennsylvania. I uh, grew up in, in Wilkes-Barre, actually. Spent uh, all my childhood there. Um, attended uh, Myers High School in Wilkes-Barre. He graduated from there in 1982, also attended King's College and, uh, and left uh, Pennsylvania in 2004 to pursue a lifelong dream of uh, living in the West and the Rocky Mountains. I've uh, been here ever since. Which is one of our themes today. We will dig deep <laughs> into the, 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 westerly, uh, the westerly journey, okay? Yeah, you um, bet. Okay. And you're a man of, of accomplishment in multi-sport, I know. And I think you also have enjoyed a great career in finance and been quite successful there, which I think some of the people that know you may not even be that aware of, right? No, it's probably true. Uh, you know, I've, 
I've kept my, um, my personal and professional life uh, fairly separate in a lot of realms. You know, when I say personal, I mean, you know, my, uh, my interest in endurance sports, triathlon, that sort of thing. Uh, but had a, had a very uh, um, explosive career in, in back East in banking, had um, started in, in banking in 1990, uh, would have been 93, and um, had a good run with um, a host of different financial institutions up and down that Eastern seaboard, uh, ending, ending my banking career with a departure in 2001. And I opened a, uh, I opened a commercial mortgage and, and brokerage business back East uh, called Aspen Capital Group. And you could probably uh, identify the, uh, the, the living passion in the title Aspen <laughs> yeah, Capital Group. Where you were headed. Yeah, that was a foreshadowing, as, as yeah. people will see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, That's funny. I didn't notice that even in your, even in the name of your company, you were foreshadowing where you were. No, no, no doubt. Yeah. It's always been there. Um, and then, uh, you know, oddly enough, I mean, I had a, an old, uh, resume sitting out or monster, uh, you know, from numerous attempts to, you know, try to secure something in the West for many years. <clears throat> and, um, kind of hit me out of nowhere in, in 2004 and, uh, without any hesitation, I jumped on the opportunity and and moved west. Uh, so been been in Colorado since 2004. Uh, I worked for a uh, still kind of serving the financial industry. I've had a couple different roles since I've been out here. I I started with a banking institution here in Colorado and and then had migrated um, into I was a CEO of a, uh, a real estate um, referral network and, and uh, services group. And I left that and uh, did did a little stint in private equity and then landed uh, the, the opportunity where I am now working with a small analytics firm and the tech center and our clients are banks and financial institutions. So I, st you know, I still have the acumen, still speak the language. Um, I'm just on the other side of the table today. Good. Good. Sounds like a, a successful career. And obviously we're going to hear in a minute about some of the things that went on a little bit earlier in life and how they prepared you clearly for a path of great success for the people that don't know, Sam, um, an icon, without a doubt, in the community of multi-sport. But today, here on 100 Words, and of course, a lot of our guests are originating that way, and you will hear some of the amazing things later in the podcast that Sam is doing in that regard. But I do want to say that um, I want to start a little bit earlier in your life. And when I first... So Sam and I, you, you and I have been acquainted for a while, but we really haven't gotten to know each other. And when we did a, the prep for this, we talked about your earlier days, and I'd like to dig in a little bit in to what I guess we collectively would call the relentless pursuit of your dreams that started young. And it was not a smooth path for you. Uh, in fact, it was a path wrought with a great deal of, um, I guess I would call it your own evolution. Why don't you start with your childhood a little bit? And we know you had a dream to go West now, and but that was not a straight line. Why don't you talk about, you know, things that happened with your parents, with your mom and all of your siblings and kind of paint a picture. And maybe you could help us understand the, the, the tall role you were called into play on it would be you'd be the wouldn't be the first guest to have endured something like this but I think your story is worth telling and people will be benefit from hearing it yeah sure you know yeah none of us have a straight line right mm -hmm. um, no I you know I my my upbringing um, my early childhood frankly um, you know quite felt quite magical I mean I I uh, felt very blessed uh, 
we, we had a, an unusual uh, home, home situation in the sense that uh, the house that I lived in, in in Wilkesbury was a big old Victorian that had 18 rooms. And at one point it was, it was the home uh, built by my great grandfather who was president judge of Luzerne County for 22 years, I believe. And um, when he had passed, my grandmother had widowed her, her husband, my grandfather uh, was killed just down the street from that uh, home in a uh, housing explosion uh, young. I think my mom and, and uh, her brother, my uncle were, uh, were just teenagers. My uncle maybe 12, my mom maybe 15. So my grandmother widowed and had taken over the family home, the, the big Victorian. And uh, when my mom and dad, uh, after they had me, they moved into that home with my grandmother. And, uh, you know, we had a built-in pool in the backyard and, and uh, I had all these, you know, I had all these relatives around me. It was, it was really, you know, quite a, quite a great and magical time, uh, you know, growing up in, in South Wilkesbury. Um, my dad was a, car dealer, had uh, worked really hard from the age of 18, started his own business and, and had built up and, um, and owned a, uh, a business over in Wyoming, Pennsylvania called uh, Midway Motors. He was a Jaguar, Rover, MG, Triumph, uh, new car dealer and used car dealer. And actually, 1980 had uh, even become uh, like the number one Jag dealer in the United States out of, you know, out of Wyoming Valley, which is wow. pretty interesting. But, um, but things took, took a pretty hard turn. We, you know, I knew there were, there were issues. My dad, I didn't see him much. You know, he was a busy man. I worked for him uh, my summers and weekends, cleaning cars, and you know, I was a lot boy. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, and it was, it was a lot of fun. But I knew my dad more as the uh, authoritarian and disciplinarian, if you will, in the family. And, and uh, he, he worked six days a week, long hours, would come home generally like 10 o'clock at night, uh, leave, you know, when I was about heading out to school. And so we didn't have much of a personal relationship. He wasn't, he wasn't around to throw a ball uh, with me or, or do any of those things. Um, and quite frankly, the, probably the most influential male in my life was, was my uncle, my mom's brother, who uh, at times had lived in that house with us as well. Um, so your mom really was the primary parental figure present in your life early yeah, on, right? No doubt. She was, she was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, I'm the oldest of uh, five, and, uh, and there's 18 years between me and, and my youngest brother, the baby of the family. She had him at, at the age of 40, actually. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. I was a freshman in, uh, in college. But um, I knew my mom and dad's relationship was, you know, was troubled. Uh, they fought a lot. Uh, you know, l- looking back, I think I didn't know how to deal with it and really understand it as a kid, you know, most of the time spent hiding in my room, trying to avoid the, the battles. But, um, but, but it, I think they had a rather tumultuous relationship. My dad, you know, was busy and gone a lot and, and almost had a life outside of hours with, with his business. Um, and I think my mom, you know, was pretty challenged, you know, raising all the kids, you know, aren't who own. wouldn't be five yeah. kids. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. And um, when it was, you know, when I, when I, I think the, you know, the, the impact of that started to hit me in high school. I, I was, uh, you know, I was pretty on point as a kid and, and uh, pretty straight shooting and, and uh, you know, and, and didn't venture into trouble much. Uh, but, you know, when I hit my teens, I think that started to express itself and, and I, I became a little distracted. I, I'd always been a swimmer. I, I started swimming at the age of eight. I, 
you know, one of the things that, um, you know, really led me to that was I was, I was a, uh, a very troubled asthmatic. So okay. as a kid, suffered terribly. Yeah, uh, I, I really did. And there was no medication back then. It's not like it is today. I think I knew one other kid and actually it was one of those arranged kind of meetings where my mom, <laughs> you know, found another kid that had asthma and met that arranged. She you know, arranged like, the meeting. Let's, let's bring these two, you know, awkwardly asthmatic kids together and see if they can, you know, relate. And, um, you know, out, outside of the asthma, I was, you know, I was a pretty adventurous kid and, and, uh, we, we had a pool in the backyard, you know, I was active and, and, um, but, but the asthma was, you know, it was, it was a game killer for me. I, many times couldn't get through a PE class. Anything that had to do with running was out. No baseball, no football, you know, nothing like that. I find that ironic given your current statue, but we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. There's sure story there, (laughs) but, um, but you know, I was introduced swimming. My mom uh, got me into competitive swimming at eight at the uh, Wilkes-Barre YMCA there and uh, immediately took to it. I had, I had, uh, you know, a lot of prowess and good success as a swimmer there and, and continued to break records and as an age grouper, um, you know, stood out. I had the opportunity to swim with um, some really talented people, some great coaching back then and um, got into high school and, and uh, you know, in Pennsylvania back there at Myers High School started in seventh grade. So okay. uh, it was seven through 12. And um, when I, when I got to high school, my former health uh, teacher from grade school was the coach of swimming uh, supersonic electrophonic Jack Monic. Uh, I think uh, you might know <laughs> some Jack. people will get that. Not <laughs> yeah, everyone, but some not people everyone. will. Yep. Uh, but anyway, he was, he was the coach. And, um, and so he knew, he knew me and, and knew that I was a swimmer. And, and so when I got to high school, it was pretty cool because as a seventh grader, he would pull me in and let me swim with a high school varsity team just to, you know, just to attend practice. And I think I was in eighth grade and it's one of the first days of, you know, two laps of breaststroke broke a pool record there. And, and that earned me the, you know, the attention of the upperclassmen. And, and I, you know, I had the, I had the benefit of getting to know some of those guys. And so, you know, they made my entry into high school, you know, much more favorable. Uh, He left the program in my freshman year and, and consequently the program took a really big turn. We, we, uh, we picked I assume for the worst, unfortunately. For yes. the worst, yeah, I hate to say it. You know, we had a great guy uh, that had taken over the coaching, but he was not familiar with swimming. Didn't know sport. Matter of fact, he couldn't swim himself. Oh my yeah. god! And um, so he took the program over, and 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 it was it was a downer for me because you know I'd come out of such a dynamic uh, age group experience, and I was in this high school program that was really kind of floundering, and and with a lot of kids that uh, you know didn't know swimming, and a coach that really couldn't couldn't speak to it very well. He did his best, but it, it, uh, I became a little disenfranchised. You know, when you, when you're 15 or 16 and you're walking through the halls and somebody asks you if you want to go hang out on uh, Friday or Saturday and you say, I can't because we have, I have a swim meet and they're like, Oh, we have a swim team. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the kind of thing that you That didn't help. <laughs> that did not help. No. So, I swam, but I, I started becoming distracted and, and started to lose a little bit of interest. Uh, I, I, I swam through my varsity years, but uh, when it was when it was time to, um, you know, think about moving on, I had a, a number of uh, colleges that were, uh, you know, looking to have conversations about recruiting, and I, I thumbed my nose at all of them. I didn't want to talk to them about, you know, about the sport anymore. Uh, 
at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's and a shame. That, so you got, you lost the the edge there, you know, maybe different path would have taken you. Although I think there's other things in your upbringing that would interrupt that further. I might be out of time on this in the, in the, in the timeline, but will you talk about, are you willing to talk a little bit about your mother and how that went down and your, all your siblings and yeah, you know, sure. kind I of mean, like, yeah. Like I had, um, I had aspired after high school to, to go away. I just, you know, I, I you wanted to go, to you still you wanted, wanted to go West. You already knew you wanted to go. Yeah. I did. And I, I didn't know how to put that together. I, you know, my mom was busy, you know, raising, you know, my, my siblings and, and the uh, army. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The army over there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, my dad was preoccupied with his business and trying to keep that, that going. And uh, I, I didn't, I didn't really know how to, and I, you know, I'd kind of slipped on grades. So college, college was kind of a last minute choice. And I had this buddy who said, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm looking at school in Florida and, uh, you know, why don't you check it out? You know, uh, we can go down there and surf and, and go to school. Well, that, that sounded like a good plan. It wasn't Colorado, but surfing. Good any. So, um, anyway, I, I, uh, I ended up going to school in Florida and, and, um, man, I wasn't there much more than, uh, half a semester or so and my dad had lost his business and um and my mom had been diagnosed with cancer and she filed for divorce almost immediately after that and wow. my, that's a lot all at once man. yeah yeah i remember calling home um from a payphone right and telling my she mom put a diamond you <laughs> put a diamond in the payphone. it was probably maybe, yeah maybe, it's maybe a rotary phone anyway <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. i'm sure it was and uh, calling home and saying, you know, mom, I, I need money, you know, for, for rent and food. And, and she said, Sammy, there's, there's no money. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't really relate because I, I grew up not really having to want for anything. I mean, you know, my dad's business had been pretty successful. And there was At always, one time, yeah, earlier on. Al- earlier, yeah, there was yeah. always money. Um, and I said, well, mom, you know, what am I supposed to do? And she said, get a job. And, uh, you know, with, without hesitation, that's, that's what I did. I, I went out and, and, and got a job, but the job obviously made it pretty difficult to be in school full time. I was, I was working evenings till uh, 10 PM and, uh, you know, coming home and, and trying to manage schoolwork. And, and then the, you know, the building stress of knowing that there's so much dysfunction at home and that uh, my siblings were living in this broken home. You know, back then, Brian, it's 1982. I didn't know anybody else that had a family that was divorced. It was, you know, it was still, it was a strange thing. I wasn't prevalent. Yeah, it wasn't prevalent. No, it wasn't prevalent. prevalent. Or people didn't talk about it. One of the two, you know, which was. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and so I was, I was embarrassed and humiliated by it. And, uh, and, and, you know, frankly, I think that fed into some of the frustrations. Like, wow, how could, how could my parents do this? How could they, how could they just quit? You know, there's, there's so many responsibilities still in front of them with, with the kids and all. And my dad had taken a job and he moved to California to try to send money home, uh, which, you know, so I hadn't seen him. And uh, I stayed in school uh, down there for a year and, and, um, and it ended up, you know, floundering again and, and moving back home. Uh, Pennsylvania and transferred back to uh, a community college in Pennsylvania and really felt like a complete failure. Uh, I had, you know, I had a desire to come home and, and uh, 
you know, do what I could to be an influence in, in the lives of my younger brothers and sisters. But, but coming back, uh, you know, I, I really dealt with, with a lot of failure. So that put me in a kind of bad place. I think I balanced it with, you know, the responsibility and the obligation I felt I had for my younger brothers and sisters. But uh, so you, you, you were called back, you were called back to help and you followed that calling some, you got brought up, right. You got raised, right. To have that level of responsibility and you sacrificed your journey a little there to, to raise your help, raise your, your siblings while mom wasn't doing well. So, I mean, I think that's, that's a, a tremendous sacrifice. I'm sure you, you had other plans. Of course you did. And you wanted to do other things, but God had a different plan for you, I guess, for that part of it. Right. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And, you know, in, in hindsight, I, you know, I have absolutely no regrets, right? I mean, it would not put me where I am today. He had another path. I wasn't seeing at the time, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and I, I kind of wallowed in that, but, um, but, you know, as you mentioned, he had, a, he had a different path and, and it, it, what it, what it did bring me uh, was an opportunity to, uh, you know, to really get to know and have a, you know, I think anyway, a, you know, pretty strong impact in the lives, especially of my two younger brothers, because they were, they were just babies. Um, I did leave again. I left in 1985. I, things were, things were pretty rough at home, uh, you know, with, with the divorce, you know, being uh, you know, rather contentious. And, and I, I had an opportunity to go West actually to Arizona uh, with a friend and, and it was an escape for me. So you took it. Uh, I, I did. Yeah, I packed everything in my own, in my 1978 Jeep, uh, Jeep Wrangler and uh, CJ five and, and uh, moved to Arizona and spent my weekends exploring the deserts and the mountains around Prescott and Flagstaff and trying to find. And just work. so you know, if you don't know Sam, no one keeps Sam inside. So <laughs> Sam would live in the outside if that were, uh, you know, if this era were permitted, maybe it will one day Probably for you. True. But any case, so you're outside exploring on the weekends, right? Yeah, and it was, you know, it was great. I, I, I mean, it gave me a, enough of an escape emotionally and mentally to kind of get my feet back under me and, and do some things, you know, pursue you know, some things that I was interested in. And, and I, I got some great hiking in and such, but it didn't last long. I, I, I had not seen my dad in, in about two years. And um, the Jeep I was driving uh, was starting to have issues. I needed to sell it. I called home and my, my mom said, you know, call your father. I think he's living in Florida now and, you know, he might be able to help you with a vehicle. Okay. And so I reunited with my dad and, and, you know, I was on my way to Colorado, Colorado, frankly, I'd, uh, I'd met a guy there that was moving to Colorado and he said, you know, Hey, I've got a brother that's you know, manager at one of the resorts. Why don't you come and spend a couple months, you know, with me up in Colorado working. I thought, okay, that's right. That's, that's been my dream. You're in, yeah. you're in. Okay. All right. So I called dad and I'm like, dad, listen, I, uh, I need a car. What do I do? And he's like, why don't you come down here, sell your vehicle and, and we'll, we'll buy you a car down here. You can catch up with me. It's been a long time. And, and then you can drive up and see your buddy. That sounded like a reasonable plan. I had $3,850 in my pocket from selling <laughs> and uh, I flew to Florida to see my dad, which I thought was going to be a week. And uh, once we we got reunited, I, f I found out he was actually in a pretty tough spot, and uh, and I loaned him all the money that I had had, and uh, and so there I was without a car, without a penny, yeah, yeah, no car, and, no penny, nothing. yeah, and it, and it, you know, and again, I felt pretty broken. The, uh, you know, back then there was no cell phones. The guy that I was supposed to meet up with in 
Arizona was going to Colorado had left. I had no way of getting back in touch with him. I'd missed that window. And, and uh, my dad said to me, listen, uh, I can't be with your younger brothers and sisters. Uh, I need, you know, I need you to move home and, oh, and be there. Uh, again. So, so yeah, again, that back. back. Yep. And I, you know, I went back. It, it wasn't pleasant. I, I, I landed my mom. At this point, was your mother still alive or had she passed? She, at this no, point? she, she was alive and, and uh, you know, and I understand well, it. But now, it wasn't but, going, it wasn't going well. Right? No, she was struggling and she was very distrusting of me at the time. She, she seemed to think that I was moving back to steal my younger brothers and take them to see my dad or something. So she, she wanted nothing to do with me at that point when I came back. So I came back and I, I really didn't have a place to go. I ended up on a buddy's um, love seat for several weeks and um, <laughs> until I you know, found a job <laughs> and, uh, and clawed my way back up again. You know, I bought a, I ended up, uh, you know, I got a job working construction and bought a motorcycle and, uh, you know, managed to get to work. And, and then one thing led to another. And, you know, I was, on, when I had time, I would come down and see my brothers and take them for ice cream or take them to the mountains and go hiking and do things like that. Try to, try to be a, you know, fixture in their life. Um, and uh, <laughs> then I moved into an apartment uh, in Wilkesbury and uh, started, started feeling like I had my feet under me again. And uh, one night around one o'clock in the morning, my roommate woke me up and said, Sam, are, are you up? I said, I am now. What's up? And he said, listen, I don't want to startle you, but we need to get out of the house now. It's on fire. Oh, my and, God. Uh, and I was on the third floor. And um, when I, I did, I threw on a pair of jeans and a jean jacket. And um, I came downstairs and, and the place was engulfed in flames. Oh, my God. And we, we thought maybe that the, the girl rented on the first floor might still be trapped in her her apartment. So we were attempting to get in there to, uh, to try to rescue her. And so when he went in, of course, all this black smoke was billowing out. And um, I'd been yelling to him, just, hey, keep talking to me. So I know you're okay. Keep talking to me. And, and he went silent. And, uh, and I freaked and I had tried to get into that apartment to find him and, and or her. And, um, you know, I realized pretty quickly, I didn't know what I was doing. And I was I was really becoming overwhelmed by all the smoke and, and, uh, and then when I, you know, I got to a section, it was just complete flames and I couldn't get through it. And I, I, I ran out the, the back door and when I looked, they were, they, they were outside. So they had gotten out. Yeah. Oh my God. And, and I was in. <laughs> That's scary, uh, man. Oh my God. And I think, you know, within an hour, uh, it was completely devastated. And, you know, then I had found myself again without a place and, um, Man, you've been reduced down <laughs> several times. Yeah. Man. Yeah, it was. Of course, that sets us up for what's the late, but wow. So you could be beaten down to the ground and built. See, that your house burned to the ground. That was it. The whole, everything gone. Everything. Yeah, I didn't have much, but what I had was yeah. gone. Yep. I had a jean jacket, a pair of jeans, and uh, everything else was destroyed by fire and smoke. Um, but you know, I had a job still, so I managed to get myself back to work and, and, uh, you know, once again, got my feet under, but, but that was when I think at that point, you know, my mom realized that I'd, I'd been kicked down and, and, uh, you know, I was just, I was just there to help. 
and uh, we reunited and, and amended our relationship and, and, uh, and things really began to improve at that point. Uh, and then I, you know, then I got busy. I, I, you know, I landed a new job. I went to work for my uncle selling homes and started making a little bit of money, got myself back into school and I started dreaming again. Uh, again, yeah, the I, dream faucet had to be shut off through all the downs. Yeah, thing. periodically, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting, and we'll t- we can talk more about that. But you, you know, when you, you know, dreams are, I believe, are built by, you know, a sense of uh, emotion, right? Like something touches you that and inspires emotion, and and uh, and I think if you continue to you know, kind of feed that periodically, right? Just tap into that either by, uh, as I did, by, you know, picking up books or watching movies or, you know, studying the Rocky Mountains and, and learning about the areas. It continued to, to feed it, uh, even if it wasn't something that I could, you know, I could realize immediately. Uh, but yes, it, it was, you know, gave me an opportunity to kind of rekindle those thoughts and um, by the way, we're going to talk about a particular movie later. Not yet, but we're going to talk <laughs> about a movie later, which right. is a little foreshadowing in the uh, it's extremely interesting story. So you're dreaming again. And are we at a point now where you're about to discover for the first time your love for triathlon or no, we're not quite there yet. Where are we? Yeah, we are. Uh, so this is this was mid 80s. And um, and uh, I had um, reunited with my cousin. Uh, who uh, was a former junior, junior pro cyclist. And, you know, we were, we were hanging out and uh, he was, he was, he had been racing bikes and he was doing the Wilkesbury trap one in a relay. And he had said to me, uh, Hey, look, we're, we're putting this hotshot relay team together and uh, wanted to know if you'd be interested in, you know, doing the swim leg portion. Well, I'd been familiar with trap one, but not, I'd never done one. I'd seen, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the episodes of uh, you know, the Kona Ironman World Championship back there in the early years, <laughs> Julie Moss crawling across the finish line and knew it was this dog. crawler. If you, you, yeah. you know what he's talking about when yeah. she crawls across yeah. the finish line, which is the like most dramatic moment in sports, let alone triathlon. But no doubt. Okay. And you've uh, never done one. you never done no, one. So you got no, I've never really in. seen one yeah. in person. And, and I asked yeah. him, I said, well, how long's the swim? He said, a mile. He's like, oh, okay. You know, I hadn't been swimming competitively in, in a couple of years, but, uh, you know, I'd stayed in shape and I thought, well, let me get in the pool and see how I feel. And I went, you know, I went to a local club and I got in the pool, you know, one or two times and busted out a mile and thought, okay, I can, I can manage that. No sweat. And, um, I don't know, race Dave showed up thinking not too much of, you know, that swim in front of me and, and, you know, teed up on the beach and, and the gun went off and, and I went out hard and fast with a, with a small lead group. And I think I got maybe 200 meters out. And uh, Which I, isn't very many, by the uh, way, for those listening. No, not into that mile. And um, I started having an asthma attack. Oh, my God. And, man, I just, Either it was nerves or just going out too hard or whatever it was. Yeah, and I, well, I hadn't been, you know, I, no medication back then. And okay. you just never knew what was going to happen. And, and I think it was just from the exertion. So anyway, I, I, I kept trying to talk myself into just get to next buoy, get to next buoy. And, and I'd knocked off a buoy or two and, and then it kept getting worse. And I ended up having to swim off, uh, you know, to a, uh, to a boat that was nearby. They pulled me out, you know, took me ashore, put me on oxygen. And 
and man, I was humiliated. I was just totally humiliated. You know, they, I, I, I never met the runner. He, he was sitting at another location at transition waiting for yes. my cousin yes. to come through who never, the end of the bike life. course. That was no it. one ever went to the end yeah. of the bike course. Yeah. So, Ooh. uh, yeah, I, I hung my head and, and was, and was, was pretty, was pretty, um, pretty disgusted. And, and I thought, you know what, I'm, I don't know, I don't know how to get over this, but <clears throat> maybe if I, maybe if I do more of the things that uh, are difficult for me, I can break through. Maybe if I do more cardiovascular training, maybe if I do more endurance type stuff, I can cure this asthma. So I set out on a mission to try to cure my asthma by training for triathlon. So I bought a bike off a guy up in Trucksville, an old Cannondale that he was selling. And I stripped it down and took it to my buddy, Tom Jones. And uh, Tom Jones, tribute, had, tribute to he, Tom Jones yeah, right now. Yeah, right had now. It, okay. I had it painted purple and Tom got me some new Cannondale logos, stickers for it. Okay. And um, built the bike up. And the following year, I did my first triathlon up in upstate New York and by myself, I went up there kind of quietly. Didn't want to tell anybody what I was up to. I took my you trained privately. Yeah. You competed yeah. privately. Yeah. Yep. And um, by the way, for those listening, that's a frequent <laughs> technique for someone who's trying to get in there. They don't want anyone to know just in case things don't work out. You know what I mean? That's exactly right. Okay, all right. So you did your secret training and you went up and you finished it. Yeah. Fin and finish is the word, man. You're absolutely right. I have no idea how I placed in that event. You know, it was a sprint <laughs> event. I, I don't even remember. Maybe you didn't even like, care. It you didn't matter, right? Because it was, it was, could I do this, right? Could I, could I just get yeah. through this? And um, you know how that goes, man. Once, I once, once I had um, accomplished that, I was just so stoked. And, um, and that was it. So that, that, you know, that lit a fire of, uh, in me to continue in the, let me let me take an editorial comment and say that for people listening that aren't familiar with either endurance sports or triathlon, when you first start out, it's just about crossing that finish line. People have this vision that you're competing in an Olympic event where there's everybody's, you know, competing against each other. I find more often than not where I, you know, just crossing that line. And most most people that compete in these events are just all about getting across the line with you. And in fact, encouraging you to do it. Don't get me wrong. There's always the top echelon of competitors. And Sam, I think you emerge into that more than, you know, some. But for many of us, it's just about crossing the finish line. So that's amazing. Well, that was a propelling point for you then, wasn't it? Oh, no doubt. And yeah. Let's talk about, and let's introduce people to something called No Zero Days. First of all, what is it? How did it begin? Take us into the era here of, the, I think we're moving towards that anyway, of what yeah. No Zero Days is and what it stands for. So it was, it was um, 2001. I had um, <clears throat> I'd been married and uh, had um, two kids. I just had a uh, a daughter who was five and a son who was just born and uh, career was had taken off. I had got introduced to the world of banking and, and that had kept me really busy. Uh, but, and I just finished a book called a walk in the woods by an author named Bill Bryson. Uh, great book, by the way, they actually made a movie out of the book as well. I think Robert Redford and Nick Nolte starred in it. The book was about uh, two guys who had essentially reunited after high school many years and had, you know, put on extra pounds and, and, uh, had fallen out of shape. And they thought, Hey, instead of like getting back together, let's do something, you know, uh, kind of epic. Let's, let's get reacquainted while doing the Appalachian trail. So they were going to attempt the through hike on the Appalachian trail. Okay. And, and the book was really, you know, 
it, it, very intriguing, inspiring. And in that summer, uh, spring, my wife's niece uh, had decided to attempt to through hike the Appalachian Trail. So on a scale uh, of one to 10, what's the difficulty level of through hiking the Appalachian Trail for people that don't know? Many people don't. So how would you describe the difficulty of that task? Oh, I wish I remembered the the percentage of people that start and finish, but man, okay. it's, it's in the single digits, right? <laughs> I see. Uh, so in, there are a lot of people who do section hikes, you know, and they may accomplish the Appalachian Trail over, you know, a decade of section hikes or something. But, but a through hike takes three plus months, right, of hiking. Oh, my God. Okay. You know, okay. Fifteen hundred some miles from now we're getting oh yeah. fifteen hundred some miles. Okay, we're getting perspective. Yeah. And you know, right up to right up to uh, Mount Katahdin in Maine. And um, okay. so as she was as she was working her way north, uh, the the trail intersects not far from her mom's home, uh, up, up past Mountaintop. And we thought, well, her mom was throwing a barbecue when you know when she came in to town. So. I was pretty excited. We went up to the barbecue and Kelly showed up with like, you know, eight or nine of her trail mates, you know, just folks that were going by aliases, you know, trail aliases like leaf and, <laughs> and uh, you know, dirt or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and they, you know, pretty eclectic bunch. And, and uh, I was just so stoked to be able to, to meet some of these folks and listen to stories and find out what it was that drove them to get out there on the trail and, man, they all had stories, you know, they, they were all either, you know, trying to discover themselves or running from something. Um, but one of the things that's, that kind of stood out to me was at least my limited knowledge from reading the book was that they were about 30 days behind pace to make it to Katahdin before winter fell and snow was flying. Okay. And so I was curious. If, 30 days. Yeah. Behind. They were a month, they were a month behind pace, <laughs> recommended pace. Right. So I was really curious whether or not, you know, they felt they were going to be able to, you know, achieve the goal and make it. And um, I didn't want to be a downer and ask anybody, but, you know, I knew Kelly was fit and, and determined. And so I asked her, I said, Kelly, uh, you know, hey, I know uh, you guys are running a little bit behind. Do you think you're going to make it to Katahdin before the snow flies? And she said to me, I don't know. We had a lot of zero days, meaning, that, I see. Uh, you know, there were days she didn't log a mile. And I, I, you know, I, I started thinking not too critically, but man, like if you just would have done a mile one day, but to just sit and do nothing, like when you have this big audacious task in front of you, right? And then it, then it hit me because I had been making the same excuses in my life at that time. I was not able to make the Wednesday night bike rides because of work and family. And I wasn't making the, the Monday night workouts. And I was only showing up on the weekends for the swim bike run stuff out of the lake and started getting my ass kicked out there and, and that that was getting me down and and I didn't know how to figure out this work-life balance thing and uh so I I was you know kind of with the impression if I didn't have two hours to go for a bike ride get 30 miles in it wasn't worth my time so I would it was all or nothing in a way yeah, all or nothing. I would, yeah. yeah I would not work out right yeah and um and I felt the same way about the gym if I'm at 30 minutes I can't get to the gym in 30 minutes forget it and I thought, okay, that's it. No more excuses from now on. I'm going to do something every day. Every day. There will be no zero days from, from now forward. And uh, so that's, that's how it began. Uh, that's the origin of no zero days. A little editorial commentary. <laughs> For those people that want to follow this, you can find no zero days on Facebook. I'll post in the notes the URL. You can click it. You can visit it. 
but I highly encourage you to get involved. It's a great group of people. So anyway, so No Zero Days is born out of uh, this observation that had just, they just put in one or two, you know, and, uh, you know, we can all learn from that, which is, it's not all or nothing. You can do something to stay moving every single day, right? No doubt. No doubt. We all have time. Yep. And, um, you know, it was an ethos that I just held on to for a long time and kind of kept to myself. And that's how I trained with that mentality. Like, man, I'm just, you know, I know I may not have the time. I'm not going to, I'm not going to beat myself up over what I don't have. I'm going to focus on the time in front of me. So if I'm traveling, I'm in a hotel, uh, you know, and all I'm, all I'm able to do is, you know, hundred pushups on the floor. I'm going to check the box, yep. but it, it did a lot more for me, Brian, than, you know, just physical, uh, uh, you know, benefits it, mentally. It, it kept me in the game, right? Like I didn't go through that. The, I totally put an end to that roller coaster of fitness. There, there, there was never, you know, this man, I don't know what to do because I'm, I'm out of shape. Where do I begin now? You know, it's been three weeks since I've done anything. Do I go for a run? Why bother? Do I go to the gym? How do I, how do I get there? Um, and so that's, that's one of the big advantages for me that I, that I got out of that ethos was, uh, you know, that I mentally, I felt like I was always, you know, still in the game. It's powerful, man. It's powerful. I wish I could practice it as consistently and that we all probably could, but no zero days in terms of, you know, participating in, let's say the Facebook group gives you, you know, definitely a, it, we, we, we see the, the ethos being followed and it's very motivating and uplifting to see it. So, okay. Thanks for that. But you still had to deal with your share of injuries, setbacks and other things that I guess the, this guiding principle helped you through, but nonetheless, it wasn't a pain-free journey, was it? No. And, you know, for none of us, I think the, uh, <clears throat> there, there are a couple of situations like, um, you know, 2000, 2000, I'd always wanted to do an Ironman, right? Like, Okay. You know, that, that was kind of the, uh, you, know, that, that, you know, that was the, you know, the pinnacle challenge for, for a triathlete, right? If you can, if you can do an Ironman and, and I had always been under the assumption presumption that, you know, I needed these mega hours to train and I never wanted to devote that kind of time, take it away from my, from my family or, you know, sacrifice anybody else for, you know, for, you know, for my quest to do an Ironman. So I, I put it off for a bunch of years. In 2010, I'd signed up for uh, Ironman Florida. And, uh, you know, I had, the re- I had the registration. I called our buddy there, John McGurk. <laughs> and uh, I said, <laughs> John, I signed up for this. You know, yeah, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I signed up for this, for this Ironman. I'm, I'm all stoked. You know, I want to get some training together. Can you share some training tips stuff? And he's like, do you have a TT bike? I'm like, no. He's like, oh, dude. By the way, a TT bike for those listening is a special triathlon bike that allows you to be more aero, more aerodynamic. So it's it's another level. You've seen people riding their road bikes or their mountain bikes. A TT bike is a highly specialized bike just for triathlon. So, all right. So John yeah. asked you, where's your TT bike? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, man, I don't <laughs> have one. He's like, oh, dude, you're like, dude, you don't want to do that race without a TT bike. I'm, I'm like, oh, dude. Like, okay, here's another hurdle, right? So, uh, I, you know, I've been working on a TT bike, but the reality was, you know, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't budget anymore for myself in that situation. Big so money. It's big. I, money. I ended up bailing on, uh, on the race and that, that, you know, here comes that, here comes that sense of failure again. Right. Like, you know, I pulled the trigger on this thing and, and so, uh, you know, it continued as we talk about these dreams, right. You know, you put them out there and, and, you know, they're, 
they're they're looming on the horizon and you know you, sometimes you get close start chipping away at them and you get distracted or you know life takes you off the rails for a while but but i still had a desire to get out there and do an iron man and um i realized that there wasn't going to be a perfect time <laughs> you know it, it was just going to be what it is and um so in 2012 uh I took my daughter and we went down to Ironman, Arizona to volunteer. Cause as you may know, if you volunteer, you stand a much greater chance of being able to get an entry. Cause these things sell out in minutes. Right. Yes. And, um, she and I went down, we had a, we had a, we had a really great time. Although we, uh, we were first on scene for a horrific, uh, bike accident that, um, left the guy with a traumatic brain injury. And, oh, and um, uh, and, you know, so it was quite an emotional, it's quite an emotional, uh, you know, day down there. And, and I got up at three o'clock in the morning to get in line for registration, you know, to get my spot for the, for the following year. And, uh, and I did, and I was pretty That's stoked. That's an amazing roller coaster. I'm sure that after yeah. the day you had, you were probably questioning it, but uh, no, uh, you didn't anyway. No, yeah, no doubt. I, and I actually, I, you know, that guy, I've stayed in touch with him for, for a handful of years, but, but, uh, he, uh, He's, he's out of the sport now, but, um, but he did survive. And um, anyway, came back pretty stoked and ready to roll. And I was going to rock, you know, Ironman Arizona in 2013. And, uh, you know, I, I built a training plan at this time. You know, I picked up a lot of experience over the years of training and coaching. And I built myself a training plan and, and uh, decided in December I was going to get started and, and uh, kick the plan off. And uh, in late February, early March, my dad got sick. He had been living with me here in Colorado and we, we got into doctors and, uh, and, um, you know, just couldn't figure out what was going on with his gallbladder. He was in the hospital, out of the hospital kind of thing. And, and it, and it got really difficult and my training went to crap and priorities shifted. Yeah. It shifted again. Yep. And I, I started, you know, riding my bike to the hospital when he would fall asleep, I would go for a run. And we were, we were, my brothers were living here with me at the time and uh, in Colorado and, and we were taking shifts and sleeping at, at the, uh, at the hospital. And so, you know, I was sneaking in whatever kind of training I could get in and, and, uh, and, and trying not to, to get too frustrated. The fact that I'd fallen off this plan, right? Yeah. The grand plan. Yeah. You're fitting it in. She's trying to fit stuff in. And uh, anyway, yeah. My, my dad, uh, you know, unfortunately his situation uh, got worse and um, we lost him in September after uh, months and months of just exhausting battles and, uh, and, and long hours in the hospital and tests and stuff. And uh, I, then I started wondering whether or not, you know, doing the race was even something that I should be doing, you know, or should I, you know, should I still be mourning, uh, you know, my, my dad's passing and cause, cause the race was in November. Yeah. And this, right was, there. this was right there. September, yeah. And I, I reminded myself at that time, I'm like, you know what, Sam, you, you've been, you've been doing this NZD thing for years. Yeah. You're in shape and do it. You, you'll get through this thing. You may not. You could tribute him, yep. make it a tribute race, whatever it takes. Yep. Yeah. And I thought this, this would be an awesome time to put this philosophy to, to test. Let's just see if, if, a, you know, if, if a strong foundation of fitness and no real uh, 
you know, traditional Ironman training uh, by any means. Cause I think my longest run was nine miles that. Oh that my summer. God. Well, for those that are listening that don't maybe have listened, but anyway, it's a 26 mile run after a 112 mile bike ride after a 2.4 mile swim in reverse that order. So, you know, the swim, then the bike, then the run. So the longest run he had was nine miles, but he's going to have to run 26 or walk or whatever. 26.2 miles after the run and the swim. So just in case you didn't know that, just to keep you in the loop. So, okay, longest run was nine miles. Usually you get closer to 20 <laughs> miles in your training or something like that. Yeah, that was on it. That was on the plan. But, uh, and I, you know, I'd run, I'd run two marathons prior to this. So I, I knew what to expect, you know, what kind of hurt was in store for me, uh, you know, going into those. And, and I knew most of it was mental. So um, I thought, you know, mentally, um, I'm tough enough. Let's, let's see if, let's see if the foundation of fitness is, is enough to get you through. And, um, anyway, uh, you know, I hooked up with a guy, uh, that I just met at the gym who, you know, oddly enough, had said he was doing a race and he's like, I'm going down my family, but you know, they're going to be down there. Do you want to drive down with me? And I, it's, I, I went down alone. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, you know, coordinate bringing a whole family down and taking them away from, you know, what they were doing and obligations. So I went down with him and um, stayed at his father-in-law's house. And, you know, I woke up uh, two nights before. So we got there. I don't remember what day it was. It might've been Thursday. Uh, I get up Friday and I'm running a fever and I'm, oh, I'm, I'm <laughs> sick as a dog. And well, we the have- universe test the right? shit out of you. Oh, oh man. Oh my God. And we had this- we had this uh, charity ride that he was going to because he had he was doing this on some foundation and it was a ride you know ride with a pro kind of thing and and I was just so sick and you know I'm like okay I'll go because you know I'm kind of I'm, I'm a guest in this house right so you gotta uh, comply you're complying yeah. with whatever's going on yeah I, by, okay. by the way I was sleeping on the floor. You know, there's, there's no bed. They, they had a couch. It was too small for me. So I was sleeping on the floor and we went to this ride and I, I got up front with a pro by the name of Matt Russell. Um, okay. Matt's, Matt's a really great dude. And, um, and uh, he and I, he and I rode at the lead for a long time, just having, talking about fishing and stuff. He's from upstate New York. And um, I got back in, uh, from that, and I went right over to the. Uh, there was some kind of after party thing, and I went right over to the Rite Aid, and I just bought. I don't take a lot of meds, man, and and I, and I bought a handful of of cough medicine and other stuff. Yeah, <laughs> oh, and I uh, I get back, and you know, it's we're I mean, we're we're hitting we're getting ready for race day, and one of my friends from out here who's done dozens of Ironmans called me up, and she's like, hey. Are you ready? And I'm like, oh, Michelle, I am so sick. You know, I, you know, and I started telling her what's going on. And she just shut me right down. She goes, Sam, <laughs> you can race sick. And yeah, okay. I was like, okay. You believed <laughs> that's, her. That's you the believed end her. of that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I needed to hear it. And uh, okay. anyway, um, you know, I, I get to the uh, get to the start. I'm nervous, as you can imagine. And I had, I had planned my swim really effectively. I knew exactly where I wanted to be based on my swimming, you know, skills and, and ability. It's and, a far cry from your first swim. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm, 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 I'm well, you know, well thought out. I, I'm going to be top right, you know, going out. And uh, 
I had the whole swim plan in my mind and I was getting ready to get in the water and I turned around and realized I had left my inhaler in my transition bag and I freaked and I, I had to go back and scramble for that. And they, you know, they're digging through thousands of bags trying to find my bag, right? So they, they, come, they finally get my bag, find my number, they get my bag, they bring it to me, I get my inhaler. I run down, I'm running to the water's edge and a gun goes off. Oh my God. And there are no. 3,000 swimmers oh in front God. of me. <laughs> no. So I get in the water and I'm just swimming. Oh my God. A, a mass of people. And of course- you But know, you're in. I'm you in. are in. The, you're in. You know, and the poor folks that are out back, man, I mean- I just kept going by some of them thinking it like the, the, the amount of, of fortitude it must take some people knowing how poorly they swim to <laughs> still be willing to get in the water and do somehow backstroke like back breaststroke or whatever they they call it. And that's how they're going to go 2.4 miles. Right. Oh God. Uh, Anyway, I get, to the, I get to the turnaround and I'm trying to figure out how to break through this thing. I had been punched in the face a couple of times, lost my goggles. And I, I thought, man, I got to change position. I got to work my way, you know, inside somehow. So for those listening, swimming in a triathlon, it, there's a bit of a misconception. It is a bit of a contact sport. It isn't a violent rugby style thing, although it feels like it sometimes. I don't, I'm not sure that people are out to get anyone, but when you get kicked or punched, it feels like somebody came after you. And it requires a little test of your uh, mental, uh, you know, fortitude to be able to like not take it personally, as it were. So anyway, you got your beat, you get beat up. And you're trying to pull away from the group, right? Yeah, and then and so I got to the turnaround, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of peering from an angle, like how am I going to be able to break through? And some, you know, one of the volunteers, Marshall's or whatever, he's like, "Hey, you know, you're you missed. You got to go. You got to go left." Oh, and I'm like, "Yeah, I know. I'm just trying to figure out how to get through this mass of people." And and so I, you know, I made a break for it and swam through and got on the inside and, and I was, I was really enjoying coming back. I was, I was inside, uh, buoys and, uh, you know, on the return and got my head down and, and all got back it, on your track sounds yeah. like, you know, yeah. and, uh, and a, and a childhood memory had come back to me at that time. I was thinking about how much I had lost in the swim, right? I'd lost all this time. I, I wasn't going to finish in the swim. Like I thought there was no way I was going to make that up. And uh, I was trying not to deal with that, you know, with that frustration, but I thought about, I'd mentioned earlier, my uncle, my uncle being one of the most influential men in my life. And um, he lost his dad in that explosion that I mentioned, right. At a young age of 12 or 13. And so he, I think, you know, bringing me up, he put me through all these rites of passage, right. Like, you know, there are always <laughs> these tests that I had to go through. Like one time at, uh, I think I was probably eight. I don't remember it that well. Uh, my cousin was there and remembers it more vividly because he, 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 he got out of the way and, and out of the reach. But my uncle put me in a cardboard box, duct taped it closed and threw me into the pool <laughs> so, that, so that I could learn to fight my way out, you know? Okay. And I'm coming back on a swim. You had no idea what that would prepare you for. That's right, right? Decades so, later. How thank about it, Thank God right? for your uncle. Yeah. I'm coming back and that memory hits me and I just start laughing to myself in the water and I'm thinking, dude, what are you worried about? 
out of three thousand people, there's box. not there's not one person that's as well prepared for this crap as you are. You know? <laughs> uh, oh, but anyway, thank I you, had a great for race. That. Thank yeah. you for that that breadcrumb towards your uh, swim in Ironman. Okay, but uh, wow. it turned, turned out to be a great day. I I, I felt phenomenal through. Adrenaline must have taken you through. I, I guess you you made it through, man. I had That's a killer cool. bike, you know, just to, just over six hours on the bike. It made up a lot okay. of time. Um, you know, I got into the run, and as you know, you know, your legs are suffering in that transition for a while. First, I'd say three to five miles, I was kind of limping along with a one numb foot, trying to figure out what that was all about. And, and I, I I teamed up with some young guy that was uh, having a hard time, and he and I just kind of fed off each other, and and then then it kicked in, and I felt good and. And, um, you know, didn't finish, uh, you know, as well as I would have liked from a time perspective, but when it's I crossed, finished, you and, crossed, man. And, and when I finished, I felt like I could have turned around and done a whole damn thing in reverse. I, oh my God. I was pretty stoked. And so it was, you know, it was an epic moment and, and really quite emotional for me at that point. Uh, you know, as, as for many, right. You know, just, just being able to, to realize that dream and, and, uh, and overcome what you think you know might be uh, might be too too big or audacious. I want as we move to the last part of this. And this is one of my favorite parts. And you know, Sam and I met before before the evening here tonight to talk about his story a little bit. This is absolutely what I consider to be one of the most interesting parts of this. And I want you to tell us the story of uh, Jeremiah Johnson. I want you to tell us the story of something called Iron Mountain Man. And I want you to start from the beginning. I want you to talk about how this idea came to be. Make sure you remember your audience knows nothing about anything here, but take us from the beginning. This is, I think, a phenomenal story. Yeah, if they don't, that means they're too, they're too young. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Jeremiah Johnson, uh, my favorite film of all time, probably the most influential film in my life. Uh, I remember seeing it as a young boy going to the Paramount Theater to watch it. And it's a story of what year? Circa 70s, right? 70, 76, I believe. 76 was released. Robert Redford um, stars in, in, the, in the role, and he plays a character named Jeremiah Johnson. And it's based on true story, actually, a true character. But uh, in the film, Jeremiah Johnson is a, uh, is a returning uh, veteran of, I, I think it was probably Mexican-American War. And he seems to be coming out of the war with, you know, some, you know, some post trauma, if you will, and, and uh, dealing with some things kind of emotionally or psychologically and looking for an escape. And he, he comes to what is supposed to be Colorado and to be a mountain man. He, he comes to, uh, he comes to the state to. Uh, the hell explore. is a mountain man? Tell people what the hell that is. <laughs> Well, back What's in a mountain man? You know, back in 1800s during the Western expansion, uh, there was a, a move um, uh, from uh, the Canadian Rockies, you know, uh, down uh, into the states of people that were trappers, and they were uh, they were following the fur trade, and they would live in the mountains and off the land and and hunt and trap and uh, and trade, and um, and so that was life that he was pursuing. And, you know, he shows up as a greenhorn and, you know, he buys a search of a Hawkins rifle and, and some other necessities <laughs> and, and head into the mountains to become a mountain man. And so the film was about 
you know, his, his trials and tribulations of, um, you know, of, of learning to do this. And he meets, meets a, a couple of mountain men in, in, you know, in the journey. And, and uh, he ends up taking on a, a family. He marries an Indian woman and takes on an adopted son. And anyway, and ends up fighting with the, uh, with the Crow Indians and, and uh, becomes revered and idolized by them because of his warrior type, uh, you know, skills. And um, anyway, the film is very moving. The, the cinematography is incredible. You know, the, the, uh, you know the, the animals and the wildlife and the surroundings just fabulous. So it left a, left a lasting impression on me. And um, one, of the, one of the reasons I think Colorado was, was uh, you know, always, you know, it was always in, in, my, uh, in my eyesight. So uh, what, what a lot of folks don't know is that the real character, Jeremiah Johnson, they don't know that that's his real name. I think uh, if you read some of the history on him, uh, they called him in some circles, liver eating Johnson, because they said it, you know, when he would, when he would fight or kill uh, Indians, he would, he would eat their liver, which I don't think was necessarily true, but, uh, but he, he, he nevertheless was, was uh, quite a character, was, was revered and feared uh, by many and a big guy for back then, I think over six feet. And, um, and anyway, uh, that, that's what the story is based on, but he had actually been the deputy sheriff of Leadville, Colorado, uh, you know, here in, in Colorado for a short period of time. So February of 2000, 18, 19, 2019, February, 2019. Uh, I had been looking for my next big goal, you know, like for, for new physical challenge. I was trying to figure out okay. what I wanted to do. And I, and, uh, and, you know, I, I've been thinking about an Ultraman triathlon and, and I, you know, I keep looking at the, at the stats and there weren't a whole lot of competitors my age, but nevertheless, I, you know, I, I knew I can get through one if, if I put my mind to it and, and I thought about that and I thought, and, and, and I don't mean this in any kind of a, uh, I, don't, I don't mean this to be, uh, it's not like I'm boasting it by any means, but there are a lot of people that do them. It, it's not unique. I mean, as, as rare as it is and as, as top of the sport, but still a number of people are completing it. Yeah. I mean, there are probably hundreds in different parts of the world all the time. Right. So, I thought, you know, you want to go one more level up. That's what you want. Yeah. I was just looking for something that was unique as well. Not that, not that that doesn't bring its challenge, but, but I was looking for something, you know, more unique. And, and I woke up from a dream in February uh, and I I was like, man, I know what I want to do. I'd like to attempt to do an Ironman above 10,000 feet uh, on my own. And, uh, and, you know, I'll do it in Leadville, Colorado, because that, that was the, the, you know, short time home of, of uh, the real Jeremiah Johnson. Right. And this could be kind of a you're, legacy you're it right in. challenge it right for in. me. Yeah. So I called my buddy, John up, who I do a lot of the silly, the silly stuff with out here. And, and I said, Hey man, I, I got the perfect challenge for us. You know, I know what we can do and, you know, it'll be epic. And, and he's like, uh, well, yeah, we could probably do that. We don't have to do it in Leadville. We could probably do it down here in, you know, Chatfield or, you know, he's like, I don't know if I can commit that much time to training. And, and, and he, he just wasn't, obviously wasn't his dream. It was mine. Right. So he just wasn't as, as enthused as I was. And 
I'd still kind of hung on the fact that maybe I can convince him to do it. But I started to realize that, you know, that, that if it was going to happen, I was, I was going to do it on my own. Uh, and I'd scouted around that year, 2019, trying to figure out how, how I could make this work logistically because, you know, doing an, an on your own event uh, of, of that nature, I, I knew required uh, some support, right? Uh, and I would have to logistically find a place that I could swim, bike, and run out of that I can get back to the transition area because there, there wasn't going to be something provided for me. Like, yeah. a, you know, you had to dream it up. Event all so, this uh, stuff, right? Yep. And I was searching, trying to figure out routes. And I'd gone up to Leadville a couple of times, scouting around, riding, and I, I was having a hard time putting it all together. And anyway, it, it didn't happen in 2019. And, and again, you know, here I am, a little, a little discouraged and, and, uh, you know, troubled by the fact that I didn't get it. But you're done. not giving up. I know you, that that's not a give up for you. <laughs> Maybe motivates you even more. Who knows? Anyway, here you go. All right. And, you know, 2020 hits and, um, uh, you know, I start the year off like everybody else, you know, with, with great high hopes of, you know, bigger goals and better fitness and, um, COVID hits in, uh, in March. And my wife had just had shoulder surgery and, she comes home with uh, a loss of sense and smell. Oh, and, geez. Yeah. And uh, three days later, I'm running a fever. And, mm-hmm. and you know, being an asthmatic, I was pretty freaked out, you know, by the whole thing. Understandably. High risk, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And so at that time, you know, COVID was really early and I couldn't get tested. I had called. My doctor wasn't seeing patients. And, and uh, the hospital uh, didn't want to see you unless you're running – certain level of fever and I didn't want to go to the hospital. And, and um, anyway, I, I wasn't sure what was going on with my body. I knew something wasn't right. Um, and I, you know, I went into the you know, protocols that I know and, you know, trying to take care of myself, health and nutrition and vitamin supplements and did my best to fight that off. And quite frankly, it, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty uncomfortable. I didn't, I didn't have any of the real respiratory issues, but uh, I, I was having chest pain and, and out of breath and uh, fever would come and go. I'd continue to work out every day. Uh, I would change it up a little bit. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't go as anaerobic. Stay to the ethos. No zero yep. days. I don't you care know, if you have Corona or not. No, you know, it, nope. I, I was on a trainer and, and just going light. I knew, you know, not to try to go anaerobic and push myself, but I figured, you know, a little bit of exercise isn't going to hurt. So I kind of stayed with it. And then um, in April, I was really feeling sick and I finally got in and I have an incredible back pain. I got in to see my doctor and he's like, man, Sam, I, I, I can't test you. I don't have any tests. I don't know if you have it or not, but um, I could see something's going on with you. He said, um, and if I send you to hospital, I'm probably going to send you home because at the moment you're not running a fever. And he said, uh, but he asked me, he said, uh, are you still working out every day? And I said, well, I am. And he goes, listen, I've known you for almost 20 years. He said, but are you getting out? I said, well, not really. Yeah, outside. Yeah. 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 Where you live. Yeah. Yes. And he said, Sam, like you're suffocating inside. <laughs> I want you to get out and, you know, get outside, start creating some normalcy. And man, I needed to hear that. And so, um, you know, I did, I started back out and obviously I'm still feeling the effects of, of the virus. Uh, I ended up hiking. I, I did a, double 14er in June with my son. 
Okay. And uh, I'd been mountain biking and trying to get out. And then I started having this really crazy uh, heart rate irregularity where uh, May actually was. So I do this, this workout every May called the Murph. It's a big CrossFit workout. You may be familiar with it. Yes. Uh, Go Google the Murph if you want to understand the, the torture one must inflict upon oneself. But anyway, you did the Murph. Okay. So I'm doing the Murph. And actually, I, I thought oh, I'm going to change it up this year, go a little bigger. And, and we have an incline here. It's a you know, trail that runs up the thing. I'm like, I, instead of just doing the mile run, I'll, I'll run up the incline and, you know, and add a little to that. And, and I, I felt great. I actually posted one of my best times in 10 years for myself and thought, man, that was pretty awesome. And a couple of days considering, later. Considering, yeah, all yeah, things considered. A couple of days later, I, I look at Strava and one of my buddies messaged me. He's like, dude, are you even human? I'm, a, I'm like, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And he's like, look at your heart rate. And I, I looked at my, my heart rate was over 208. Is that even mathematically possible? At my when age, I, when I look at the charts, I'm, I'm feeling <laughs> yeah. like that's, I'm feeling clinical, like some clinical event occurred there. <laughs> like, and I'm like, I'm like, man, it's my watch. It's broken. You know, it's oh, okay. All right. you know, your Garmin went all. Okay. Yeah. So I put, I put my other watch on and I started watching it and sure, you know, sure enough, I'm, I'm out for like three mile runs and that I'm familiar with, I'm looking down and I'm averaging like, you know, 178 beats a minute, uh, yeah. going, going slow at 10 minute miles and stuff. So I think something's not right. Um, and that lasted, that lasted quite a while, but the one thing that COVID did present was that it canceled all of these events, right? You didn't miss any events, yeah. right? And you didn't it miss anything. But consequently, it canceled all the Leadville events. And, and the Leadville series, you know, for those who aren't familiar with it, up in Leadville, Colorado, that sits at over 10,000 feet, uh, they have a 50-mile mountain bike and a 50-mile run. They have a 100-mile bike and a 100-mile run uh, that takes place every year, uh, trail marathon. And it brings people from all over the world, you know, to attempt these, uh, to attempt these races. Uh, but they all got canceled. And what, what that did is it opened up the weekends uh, on the trails that I had been looking at and, and considering for this Iron Mountain Man. So um, I started going up and exploring. I thought, man, this, this is going to be the perfect time. There's nobody up here. I, I'll have the trails to myself. Um, so I had uh, not really well planned. It didn't get the additional resources I was looking for and support. But I asked my son, who was home from college, and I said, Hey, Bud, would, would you be willing to come up and kind of support me a little bit on this, on this event and maybe get some, you know, some filming done or whatever? And he's like, yeah, let me ask my, you know, my buddy from school. I bet he'd like to come down. So I recruited them and, and uh, you know, we rented a, an extra vehicle to port some stuff up and set up the base camp. And I'd also figured I, you know, I was going to try to do this thing all off-road, right? I, I wanted to have as little <laughs> pavement involved as possible and okay and so the route in the that spirit I, yes in the spirit yeah. yes and so the route i picked for the run incorporates the colorado trail which uh you know it's got some elevation to it it's kind of gnarly in sections um and it, and it goes around the lake and, and i figured i can kind of lap that twice and, and knock off the trail marathon that way uh but i knew that if things went by plan the bike was going to take me I figured the swim, I'd been up, I did a couple of test swims. Water's cold up there, man. It, it, you only get about, you, on, you only get about two weeks really <laughs> throughout the year that it may not snow up there. Oh God almighty. And um, so the mornings were still in the thirties 
and, um, and just above freezing. And so I knew I, I couldn't start too early, you know, just to get away for sunrise and, and it was going to be in the thirties and I'm not real big on cold water, but, uh, but I knew that the bike was going to take me at the very, very best 10 and a half hours, uh, on, on the mountain bike, bike. And that, you know, the marathon I had not been running much, you know, was, I was probably looking at five, six hours. Uh, so I figured I'd be well into the dark. My goal is try to finish the, the bike before sunset. So okay. I'd asked, I'd asked a buddy if he'd come up and trying to find somebody to pace me in the woods. Cause like I mentioned, I really wasn't great running shape and I, I didn't know what to expect out of myself after being up there at that altitude. And I was kind of concerned about pulmonary edema because I, I, I've experienced that a few times up here at elevation. Um, and I thought, man, it's probably not good to be in the middle of the woods by yourself. No. Uh, you no. know, in the middle of the night, right? If you, <laughs> you fall down, you can't get up. You're just fatigued, tired, whatever. You <laughs> That's the post. Yeah. 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 So uh, anyway, he said he'd come up and help me if he could work it out with his the kid's schedule. So I uh, was pretty, pretty stoked to at least have somebody that, you know, was willing to, you know, pace with me at the night. So we, uh, in the morning, um, I got up, I slept real poorly the night before because I'd made a mistake of not getting in my sleeping bag. I threw it over the top of me and I was on an air mattress in this van. And, and when I woke up in the middle of the night, the, the air mattress was cold probably 35 degrees out and I was freezing jumped in a bag took me a long time to kind of warm up didn't sleep well got up about uh 6 30 my plan was to get in the water at eight and um I got up and my my son you know had gotten up and it's outside and he's like dad it's it's really cold he's like you know I don't know you know maybe you should maybe you should wait a little bit and of course I was concerned about getting you know getting the bike done by sunset and I said, well, I'm going to go do 15 miles on a bike and get myself warmed up, let the sun come up a little bit, and then I'll start to swim. So I went and hammered out 15 miles on a bike, came back and, uh, and got in the water, started swimming. He was on a paddleboard with me, okay. uh, you know, kind of scouting. And um, we got swimming, or I got swimming, and, um, you know, I had, I, had a, I had a thermo uh, neoprene cap that I decided not to use. I had neoprene <laughs> booties that I decided not to use. Okay. Neoprene mittens that I decided not to use. <laughs> and um, I thought I'd just bust the swim out. And we got in the water, we're swimming, and I had my head down. And all of a sudden, I picked my head up and I look. And I knew the, I knew the terrain better than my, my boy did. And I, I looked up and I swam into a cove. I, I made a wrong turn. You went off course. You yep. were off course. Yeah. So we had to turn around, swim back out and I, I missed the section. So I added a little bit of time, maybe 20 minutes to my swim. I uh, got to the turnaround section. We're coming back and I probably should have picked up on, on these early symptoms uh, sooner, but I, I didn't. And we're, we're coming toward the finish. And I'd said to my son, pick my head up and I'm like, bud, where, where's the finish? And I mean, I'm, I don't know. 300 yards away, something like that. And he, Not that far, but okay. Right. And he's like, probably right, seem far though. Yeah. He's like right there. And I asked him again, I said, See, where is it? And he said, it's right there. You're slipping away, man. Yeah. You're slipping away. <laughs> and 
And then I'm swimming and I'm thinking, why did you just ask that stupid question? You saw it. You know, it's right there. Why are you, why are you being stupid? You're starting to get a little hypothermic, aren't you? Is that what's happening now? Yeah. And, um, I didn't notice it. I, uh, there's, is he noticing it? No, there's, there's film of me. Um, when, you know, he'd gotten out of the water and I'm still in the water and I'm sitting and I'm, I'm clutching my fingers and I had what they call claw hand. Uh, My my hands are clawed up on me. And I, and you can see me in the film kind of looking down at my hands, like what's going on in my hands. As if they were detached from you. (laughs) They're not part, the the limbs had separated from your, you know, they they were moving well. And when I stood up, my legs were moving even worse. I uh, I, I had like this Frankenstein walk because I, (laughs) my, my legs were, the, the, the muscles were literally just like frozen meat. And, um, I then started realizing I was in trouble and my buddies came up, my buddy came up with his family to see me that morning and he had just showed up and his daughter, who's maybe uh, six had come up. She's like, Hey, you know, hi. And I, you know, I put on that smile and said hello to her and, and I, and I feel my jaw starting to seize up. And then, then, you know, you hear her You're mother losing say, control of your yeah, motor functions. At exactly. This and you hear her mother say, you know, Abby, leave him alone. And like the film gets cut and uh, I, I lose my, sorry. I lose my ability to speak. Oh God. And, and um, I make it to the van. I sit down and I, I can't, I, like you said, Is I, someone I recognizing functions. your medical condition at this point. No. And I, I, you know oh, what, geez. look, this is on me, man. I, and I, I apologize <laughs> to my, my family for this because I, my son's, my fun son's a very capable kid. He's a lifeguard, but uh, he, he's not had any cold water uh, experience or familiarity. And, and, and I did, I mean, I, I was a whitewater guide. I had, you know, I had that kind of training. I knew what was happening to me, but I couldn't communicate it. And, and, and he, he was, I could tell, I could see the concern in his, in his eyes. And part of me was thinking, Man, somebody call nine one one because I feel like I'm. This is it. Slip. This yeah. is not good. But but of course I didn't want that to happen, and um, I was just trying to keep my wits about me, and and I uh, knew that I needed to communicate to them that they had to get this wetsuit off me, and they had to dry me and get my core warmed up, and uh, and I just I couldn't speak, and my son had come up and he grabbed my knees and he was just staring into my face. And I could see him starting to well up a little bit. And I thought, man, like you need to, you need to pull yourself out of this. You know, uh, I know I'm, I know I'm going into, you know, deeper stages of hyperthermia. I know that shock is next and I know people die, but I didn't know what kills them. And I'm, I'm trying to look for those symptoms. I'm thinking, okay, what comes next? Like, <laughs> is it heart attack or which generally it is. Right. And I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, I don't know how this all plays out, but I just wanted to go to sleep. Like my brain was just telling me, go to sleep, go to sleep. And finally I, I had muttered to him. I said, you need to get, get this off me and dry me and get, and get something warm in my core. And then they, they all went to work and uh, they heated up some, some water and, um, and got and ripped my clothes off and got me dried off and, wrapped me in blankets and put me in the sun. And I sat there and you know what after drop is, right? No, 
no, well, no, no. That's, that's what is the, that? That's the ugly part of hypothermia. When you start coming back, you go into uh, sh- shivering, but the shivering is more like convulsion. I see. And you just you start flopping around and you can't control it. And oh, you're God. and and you you look like a fish out of water. You know, you're just you're just flopping, and your body is trying to institute warmth. And um, and that seemed like it lasted forever. <laughs> I don't know how long. I don't know how long it was, but all in all, I think maybe an hour and a half went by, and uh, and I came out of it. And uh, my wife had showed up and saw some of this. She had just arrived, and. Uh, of course, she was thinking she'd be better off divorcing me at that point. And um, that was a sign for her. I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm really hungry. And uh, <laughs> so I just I started eating and, and I'm sitting there and I, I was thinking about it for a while. And uh, I said, hey, uh, I'm feeling OK. Like, I, I'm, I'm feeling like I want to get going. Are you getting ready to tell us that you went on with the bike? <laughs> yeah. Is that what you're going to tell us right now? Yeah. And, <laughs> After all that? I, I really, I really, I knew that some of it was adrenaline from what I had just gone yes. through, but, yes. but I you also didn't care. What difference did it make? You care. And the only thing I wasn't sure of is like what that took out of my body. I I'd, I'd been to a lot of places physically that, you know, have been uncomfortable, but I'd never been there. And I didn't know what, the result of that was, I didn't know if it meant you're going to have a heart attack later if you push yourself or you're just going to go right into fatigue, I, exhaustion. I, I just wasn't sure. And, but I, but I knew I felt okay. And I said, look, I, I want to get on a bike. I, I want to start getting some miles in and, and see how, I, how it goes, but it's probably a good idea if you guys keep me an eye shot. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it's anyway, uh, I think adrenaline story. I think adrenaline. I didn't know the end of that story. I didn't know about the swim. I don't remember that part of the story. That's unbelievable, man. Well, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was a, uh, certainly it was a lesson learned, but uh, I got on a bike and, and maybe felt too good. I ended up, I ended up hammering out like 40 miles in uh, like three hours and 28 minutes or something on a dirt and, uh, and, you know, and stopped and refueled and, and, um, and said, okay, you know, I've got, I got a bunch more miles to, to knock off. I, I don't know if I'm going to make them all by sunset now, but <laughs> I want, I want to, I want to give it a shot. So went back out and, and got on a bike again. And that first, uh, that first 40 miles was too hard and fast. I, I realized, you know, a little while later that I, I, you know, I wasn't being sensible. I pushed too hard and I started running out of juice uh, but I got 85 miles in uh, by sunset. And wow. so then I was kind of left with a predicament because my pacer wasn't there. And um, I was exhausted. Now and, you're going to push your luck. You're and now, now I got to, yeah. now I got to go into the woods and, um, and I'm, and I'm really tired and I, I just wasn't sure what to do. And, and I thought, well, I'm not going to ride in the dark cause that's dangerous now. And I figured, uh, you know, I, I had had some risk, you know, uh, presented to me in this thing. Uh, pulmonary edema, like I mentioned, was first concern. I thought, a, a, you know, a, a wreck would be maybe the next most likely, uh, you know, risk factor. And uh, hyperthermia was kind of down on the list. Uh, but 
but you know, here I am now. Isn't that life though? Isn't that life? You know, all right. So, um, my son, you know, again, being, being a voice of uh, reason said to me, dad, look, nobody's timing here, you know, like, and as far as we know, nobody's ever done this. So it's not like you have any kind of time to be. Like, Maybe it's a two day event. <laughs> Maybe like, that was the yeah. sign. It's a two day event. He's Maybe. like that, you know, dad, why don't you just, why don't you just rest a little bit and, you know, and then, you know, and then get on the run and give your buddy time to get here. So, uh, I'm like, okay, that, that's a good idea. And, and I, you know, I jumped in the sleeping bag and warmed up and, and I was resting and my buddy showed up about 11 o'clock and we got his tent set up and stuff. And, and, uh, he, uh, he wanted to get some rest. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get two hours sleep and then get up and see how we're going. So I, I, I fell asleep and I woke up, uh, you know, two hours later and, I looked at my heart rate. It was at 85, which I knew was high showing stress, but not crazy. Yeah. Um, and I felt really good. I could feel this, this buzz of energy. And I'm like, man, I, I want to get going. Well, it's probably 37 degrees out. So this time I was smarter and I'm like, get dressed in the van, turn the heat on, you know, before you go outside. And get yeah. Pre-warm. Pre-warm. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And so I did. And, um, I got out and I, I went over to his tent. I, <laughs> You know, I kind of scratched at the door and I said, Hey, Scott, you know, uh, I'm up, man. And, and I'd like to get after it. And he kind of responded with, you know, Oh, so uh, are you going to go out on your own now? Or I'm like, uh, well, if I, if I have to, <laughs> I, I you want him to come with you. Yeah, I was you want hoping you were going with the end. And yeah. I'm like, I'm like, what's up? Are, are you tired? He's like, well, yeah, kind of. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to make some coffee and then I'm going to get going. If if you happen to get up, that'd be awesome. You know? Anyway, uh, I got the coffee going and, and, uh, he rose and, uh, you know, we got our headlamps on and, and set off for the run and, and banged out, uh, the first, uh, 15 miles of, of the marathon. Uh, and it was, it was just awesome. Cause this is the, this is the guy that I, I went down with, uh, for Ironman Arizona. And okay. he and I had not done much training since then. So it had been a while. We had an opportunity to catch up. Uh, anyway, came back from that first 15, still felt pretty good and, and thought, you know, like I need to bang out. Now the sun's up, it's starting to warm up. I need to bang out the rest of this marathon. And my cousin, who uh, I had mentioned earlier, that was, you know, the bike rider in that first triathlon had come up and, and uh, he, he had agreed to do three miles with me. Um, so we started heading out. We get three miles in and just about, about two and a half in. And I said, hey, Vince, uh, I'd really like to just bury this thing and not break it up. And, just do it. Just yeah. it. And he's like, oh, that, that's going to take some food and we're going to need some fuel. And, and, I, and, you know, I don't know if and I'm like, you know, just go as far as you want to go with me. But I, I'd like to. Just I'm going. It. Yeah. And, man, it was awesome because he's, you know, I knew he had it in him anyway. And um, we, we had a chance to talk about childhood and catch up. And at one point I was kind of giggling to myself because I think he had talked nonstop <laughs> for that entire <laughs> run. And, uh, and, it, and it reminded me when I was out there, Brian, um, there was a, there's a guy I met a uh, year before. Uh, you'll find him on my page and maybe even know about him. They call him Iron Will, Will Turner. Will did at the age of 60, set out to do 60 Ironmans. 
Uh, but he ended he ended up finishing a hundred I think a hundred and five in in a two year period of time. And I followed Will's journey and I got to know him through the process and actually did a podcast with him. Uh, and when I told him that I was he makes you look like a couch potato, doesn't he? Right. Uh, he's yeah. he, he that's just, inspiring. He just man. had his sixty third birthday and Jesus. and ran sixty three miles, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, he, I had messaged him when I was setting out to do this event and I said, um, Hey, Will, you know, this is what I'm planning. He's like, Sam, that sounds awesome. He's like, I've, I've been in some high places and done some Ironman, some high places. You got to pick his book up by the way, cause he's got a, he's got a book that follows all of his Ironmans and, and his Sherpa, as he calls him, Chet Stefano, uh, phenomenal photographer documented all of his stuff. And they did a lot of his Ironmans in national parks. But he cool. said to me, you know, I'd never cool. done anything that high. He said, sounds like a great challenge. And he said to me, uh, he said, look, use it to challenge yourself, but, but don't lose sight of enjoying being grateful for being out there and doing something you love. This is and, what I want you to do. I want you to, as we come to the conclusion, I want you to talk about those kinds of things. Yeah. Gratitude, being in present in the moment, because God knows you had to be, oh, right? Oh, dude. Yeah, it, it all it all kind of came to me in the run. You know, I was out there, the sun was up and and I was feeling good. And, you know, this thing was coming to a close, right? I mean, I, I looked at this thing as this big, you know, audacious challenge. Could I do it? It was really intimidating. And here it was, it was just all coming to fruition. And and even though I had, you know, some expected challenges during the event, I, like what I was getting out of it was this um, this reconnection with, with friends, I, I had an opportunity to go to a place uh, physically and mentally that I had not been before and come out of that. And, you know, just the presence of life and the gratitude for being healthy and being able to go out and being in the Rocky Mountains was, was kind of all coming together. And I remembered what Will had told me. And, you know, I, I don't think there's any, uh, I don't think there's any coincidence in, in what I'm going to tell you next, but uh, when, when Will and I were talking about this upcoming challenge that I had, I had said to him that for me, this was going to be kind of a legacy event because uh, there's this movie, Jeremiah Johnson. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I'm doing this in Leadville. And that was the home of, of the real Jeremiah Johnson. And he responded and he said, Sam, I'm familiar with the movie. I never saw it, but I know that it came out in the summer of 1976 because my sister Crandall had gone to see it with her boyfriend and she was killed leaving the theater in a car accident. It wow. was, it was literally the last thing she had seen. Okay. That's and, an odd, bizarre right? universe coincidence right there. Yeah. And I'd said, you to had him, no, Oh my God. Well, and I said, well, I'm man, I'm so sorry. I hope I didn't bring up, you know, some, you know, some hard memories. And he said, no, actually, to the contrary, said, I, you know, I haven't, sign. I haven't thought yeah. of her lately. And, and it just, it, it really warmed me to think of her in that way. So do me a favor. When you're out there on one of those hard miles, I'd like, I'd like you to think of her. And um, it was, it was about mile 17 in the run. I was uh, coming up with my cousin uh, we, we had this climb, um, you know, on, on the east side of the lake, uh, 
coming out through some sagebrush and stuff. And I looked at it and it's not much of a climb, Brian. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe it rises 40 feet or something. Right. Okay. And I'm looking at, but I'm like, okay, another hill. I just, I don't want to do this hill. And as <laughs> soon as I start tackling the hill right then, you felt Cran- it. You Crandall, felt it yeah. yeah. Crandall's thought and memory came to me and I, I just smiled and I thought how, you know, how fulfilling is that? And I thought I'm going to have to tell Will that, you know, that that's exactly where she found me. She you know, got you right up. That moment. Yeah. yeah. It's freaking that's awesome. amazing, man. I didn't know that either. That's a great part yeah. of the story too. So, I got a couple uh, things to tell you. Let me tell you a few things. One, you need to write a book and <laughs> we will buy the book. You need to write a book, dude. That's, the stories seem endless and without, without uh, there's so many interesting little curves to each of them. So that's, that's amazing. To the regular people, many of whom who haven't done any of the kind of st- extreme things you've done in here, give us a couple closing lessons just for, that regular folk can take. Either it's out of the no zero days ethos or what you learned on some of these soul searches or near death experiences, however you want to call them. What are a couple of things people can take away before we close out? I think there are, you know, a couple of things that I've learned, you know, at least that, you know, helped me in life. And I think, uh, you know, if you, if you look at, or you followed or uh, looked into the law of attraction, uh, you know, they, they talk about how like attracts like, and, um, you know, there, there's a, there's an actual physiological, uh, you know, thing that happens in the body and, and I want to be able to get that right, but it's reticular magnetic. Activating or, oh, oh, that's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Talk about it. Yeah. Talk about it. Talk about and it, it. And it's a, it's a real thing. And I, I just in, you know, in recent months come to understand this, but there's this, you know, this, uh, this group of nerves that lives in the back of your brainstem and, and their purpose is to kind of filter, um, thoughts and, and all this data, right, that we're consuming, that our brain is consuming, that's being thrown at us on a moment-to-moment basis and put it into some type of manageable, conscious uh, uh, place that we can, we can utilize. And, and that filter, you know, has a way to, um, to kind of put things that are essentially been put into our subconscious and bring them to our conscious. And so I think back, you know, when I had a buddy growing, growing up who uh, was riding his motorcycle over in the Gateway Shopping Center on a Sunday afternoon. And he was the, he was the only uh, vehicle except for one other car approaching him in the opposite direction in this empty parking lot. Right. Nobody else. That's it. And they collide. They had all the room in the world. And they collide. And I remember saying to him at the time, Jim, how did you do that, man? Why didn't you just go left to go right? Well, you know, this explains it. There's a reason because the things that you focus on are, are the things that present themselves to you, right? Yep. And uh, so the message there and for me and I think for others that, you know, might be willing to entertain it is that uh, if, if you have dreams, you have ambitions, you know, that's where things begin. But if, if you can find a way to continue and, and maybe they don't happen and don't become realized immediately but if you can find ways to uh you know keep keep bringing them to the present uh either by reading them or 
watching films about them or dipping your toes into, if it's an Ironman that you want to do, uh, you know, beginning with the process. Keeping your attention on them, focusing on them. Because the the universe really does. Allow them to cook. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and I think for me, if I look back in, in my experience, you know, it's something I did not consciously, obviously, uh, but, you know, but it, but it certainly was, I, I certainly continued to, to entertain and bring those things from, you know, subconscious to conscious mind on occasion to keep them, to keep them present. Uh, the, you know, the other thing I'll share in my no zero days, uh, you know, philosophy is that as we had talked about, um, Fitness, you know, comes comes in all shapes and sizes, and is is really only, uh, you know, defined or, or deviated by uh, what your goals are. And um, where where many people struggle, especially this time of year, you know, they set off with uh, New Year's resolutions. Some of them are pretty ambitious, and I think that's awesome. I think you should always have these big, audacious goals in mind. Uh, but the reality is that. Uh, when, when they're big and audacious at times and, and you set a plan that might be uh, too restrictive, too overwhelming, it, you know, it can oftentimes and does usually lead to failure. But it's okay if, if you're not hitting those, those big numbers and those big goals every day to have these small levels of achievement because what, what happened for me and I think has happened to others that I've known, people that have followed and have shared with me is that, and I'll say to folks, who give me the excuse of not having time because I've been there and I'll be like, uh, how many pushups can you do in a minute? And they're like, oh, a minute, yeah, one minute. minute. How many pushups? Mm-hmm. I, and they'll be like, why? And I'm like, I'm just curious. I'm not judging you. I'm just curious. Like how many can you do? You're in just a minute? framing the problem. That's all. Exactly. It doesn't take 45 minutes. You could do something yeah. in one minute or eight. And minutes. usually the response, you know, and I'll get back and somebody will message me like 30. Because that's about average. And I'll be like, wow, 30. I'm like, so if you did 30 every day in it for a year times 365, that. yeah. that's almost 11,000 push-ups. Do you know anybody that's done 11,000 push-ups? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it takes excuse away, right? Um, but what it, what it does is, and what I've seen, is that you start to adopt those principles of doing something every day, just focused on that achievement. Before you know it, I'm getting phone calls or I'm getting messages and they're saying, hey, what does your diet look like? I've been thinking about trying this diet or um, what kind of running shoes do you have? Or yeah. do you recommend a bike? And, and it leads to a lifestyle change. And you know, one of the things that, that that RAS system does in your body or for your body is it, it creates habituation or habits. And so by setting those daily uh, expectations, just getting out and doing something, you're, you're, you're all subconsciously developing habits. The other piece that that, that, that nervous uh, response does is it, it builds up resilience. And, you know, when people talk about mental toughness and how to acquire it, you can read books on it. But the reality is, I think that the, the body can lead the brain. We all know that the power of the mind, right, has over the body and it can lead you through physical challenges, endeavors, and to to do enormous things. But to condition that, I believe it begins with a strong body. By feeding the body, by challenging the body for strength, it feeds and develops the mind. If 
if you go through as we have and so many people go through, and I don't care if it's your first 5K or your first marathon, there's a mental breakthrough that, that happens when you, when you make that achievement. And if you just continue to feed that and develop that through physical, physical challenges, and I'm not talking about going out and hurting yourself on an everyday basis, but to challenge yourself physically as, as the founders of that Leadville series Ray say to the people at the starting line or at team meetings every year, you're stronger than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can. I think it is. We, we are way more capable than we think we are. The things that hold us back uh, begin with A, not having the ability to dream or perceive them visually, and then B, not taking just some of those initial steps. Sam, listen, first of all, no zero days. We're going to put links in the podcast notes that refer you to not only the page, but also the podcast. So we're one to another here and um, amazing amount of knowledge and huge respect for what you've accomplished. And also even repeatedly being beaten down and coming back up and just not ever giving up. And that's amazing in itself. Talking about the law of attraction and some other things that people can take from it. Clearly amazing. Thank you so much for your time on this one. And uh, I encourage everyone to check out your podcast as well as No Zero Days. It's a motivating thing. And it's a great group of people that have a lot to learn from me. So thanks for appearing this week on the episode. Brian, my pleasure. Rest to you always, man.